Ephesians chapter number one and verses one through six is our text. Now, I have, cha- I have divided this entirety of this chapter into three parts. And today, verses one through six, next week, verses seven through 14, the week after that, verses 15 through 23. So let's look at verses one through six, then we'll pray, and then we'll begin. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like a letter, doesn't it? Sounds like he's writing a letter. That's because he is. Paul, an apostle, is writing a letter to these people in Ephesus, a church of Christians in Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace by which he made us acceptable in the beloved. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is simple this morning. My prayer is that you would help me teach this passage to these folks. Lord, I I pray that you would fill us with your holy understanding of the Spirit of God. I I do thank you that you filled this place with your holy people. I pray you would fill my mouth with your holy words. You would fill me with your holy presence and that you would allow every single person to hear from your Holy Spirit the truths of the Word of God. Lord, convict us where we need conviction. Rebuke us where we need rebuke. Correct us where we need correction. Reprove us where we need reproof. And encourage us where we need encouragement. Oh, dear God, help us to be faithful to the text. Help us to be faithful to what the Bible actually says here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine going home this afternoon and before you go into your house, you stop by the mailbox. You turn the key, you open it up because you haven't checked it in, you know, like three weeks. And you open it up and inside is all the normal stuff, the junk mail and the flyers and everything else. And you also find a letter. Now this letter concerns you for a moment because you look at it and it's from an attorney's office. And you think an attorney, why is an attorney writing me a letter? And it makes you nervous at first. You think, did they find out what I did? Maybe it's a... Maybe it's a problem, but then you think maybe it's a good thing. You've got a little positivity, and before you open it, you have no concept of this truth, that the contents of this letter are going to change the way you see yourself and change the way you see the world for the rest of your life. This is the pivotal moment, and so you take your finger, and you open it up, and you look inside, and you begin to read these words. As you read the words, your mind races. Our sincere condolences, it says, on your recent loss. And your mind races and you think, on my recent loss, who in my family passed away? You begin to think through, mother, I just talked to her, and father, I just talked to him, and uncles and aunts, and everybody that you possibly can think of is fine, whole, and healthy. And then it continues, our sincere condolences on your recent loss. We need to speak with you immediately regarding your inheritance. And you try to play it cool. You try to act like everything's okay. You try to act sad because somebody you know died, but also, you know, you're gonna be rich. 
And you try not to get too excited because you were born, you're, you know, you're from Las Vegas and you realize there are a lot of scams in the world. And so you call the law offices and you find out this is an actual real deal. In fact, they're going to fly you out to Washington, D.C. to go to, uh, to a specific meeting. You say, why, why Washington, D.C.? Because you have to go to the headquarters. The headquarters of what? You get in a plane, you go all the way to Washington, D.C. There at the airport, there's someone standing there with a sign and your name on it. You get inside of his limo. They take you all the way to the headquarters. What headquarters? This is the headquarters they take you to right here. Mars Chocolate North America. Yeah, hallelujah. Yeah, that's right. And you're thinking, what kind of an episode of Willy Wonka have I found myself in today? And you walk inside with all of these people. And they say, oh, hello, Mr. So-and-so. Hello, Miss So-and-so. It's so good to have you. Follow us this way. All these men in these nice suits and all these women in these nice uh, executive clothing. And they follow, you, you follow them into a broad boardroom. They open up the doors, and it's surrounded by professionals of sorts. And you can tell there are attorneys in the room because nobody is smiling. And you go and you sit down at the head of the table. And as you sit down, one of the attorneys stands up and says to you these words. Upon the death of your great uncle Frank, we must inform you that you are now the majority shareholder and heir to the chocolate throne. <laughs> yes, ma'am. And the first thing you can think and the only thing you can say is, please bring me some peanut butter M&Ms <laughs> because those are the only real M&Ms and your life has changed your life has changed forever. Not only has your life changed, you've changed the way you see yourself. You change the way others see you. Your whole life in front of you is completely different at this moment. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter. The letter he wrote was incredibly important. The Apostle Paul himself was actually a trained lawyer, a student of the law. And he writes in such a way that you can actually see that in the book of Ephesians. He writes a letter to the church at Ephesus that we have preserved for us today. That's what we're studying. He writes a letter to the people at Ephesus to tell them who they really are and the inheritance that they've discovered and have access to because they're part of the family of God. So as we study the book of Ephesians, understand what the apostle Paul was attempting to do. Teach the Ephesians who they really are and let them know everything they had been told was a lie. Now, now who is the Apostle Paul? And who are the Ephesians? To understand all that we're going to be studying over the next few months, especially the next three weeks, this is very important to grasp. The Apostle Paul was a preacher. Don't you love a good preacher? Give me an amen. Amen. Okay, some of you. Thank you. One person in the front. Very nice. If you're new to the church, your pastor needs a lot of validation. When I ask for it, you give it, or the sermon doesn't continue, you see? Don't we love a good preacher, amen? amen. Oh, that's very nice. And unnecessary, unnecessary. <laughs> Completely unnecessary. But he was a traveling preacher, not a stationary preacher. A stationary preacher, to be simplified, is a pastor, like me. I stay in one place and I teach one group of people. Um, the Apostle Paul was an evangelist. He was a traveling preacher. The most famous evangelist recently was a man named Billy Graham. He traveled around and preached to lots of people. We love Billy Graham. A lot of people have been, uh, were saved by hearing the preaching of Billy Graham. 
Paul was like Billy Graham. He went from place to place preaching and teaching. And he went on missionary journeys, planting churches and telling people about Jesus Christ. Now, he was on the second missionary journey one day where he left his, uh, his home church in Antioch. Well, I'll show you a map because it'll be more clear. He leaves his home church in Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria, and he travels all over the Roman world planting churches, starting new works. And he arrives in Ephesus. And when he's in Ephesus, he finds out that God wants to do something special there. And so there are a lot of people that are becoming Christians, and a church is being established. Now, Paul could not stay there for very long, so he leaves behind two of his best ministers, Priscilla and her husband Aquila, to help found the church. Paul goes away for a few years and then comes back on his third missionary journey where the Apostle Paul ends up staying in Ephesus for three years. He must have really liked these people because normally when Paul stayed somewhere, he would only stay there a few months and then he would move on. Paul stays in Ephesus for three years. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 17, 18, 19, and when he leaves in chapter 20. It's a really amazing story. Now, as he leaves Ephesus, he's leaving behind a good people that he loves but there's a lot they still need to learn. He travels back to Jerusalem, and when he does, it's a crazy story. He gets arrested for being a preacher. Do you agree you should not be arrested for being a preacher? Come on, amen right there. Okay, good, I'm just making sure. He gets arrested for being a preacher, and he gets shipped to Rome, and he's in prison. He's in prison for the next 10 years, and while he's in prison, now picture him, the Apostle Paul, 10 years after starting the church in Ephesus, he's there in prison, and he's thinking to himself, man, I miss my friends in Ephesus. And from what I'm hearing of the church, they have forgotten what it is to be Christian. They have forgotten who they really are. They're giving in to the philosophies of this Roman world. They're beginning to believe in hedonism, like we talked about last week, stoicism, humanism, and all the other isms of the Roman world and of our world. And so God prompts and God inspires And God moves the Apostle Paul in prison to write a letter to the church at Ephesus to tell them who they are in Jesus Christ. And that's what we have in front of us. And we begin with this concept throughout chapter one where the Apostle Paul is saying, look, the problem with most of the Christians in Ephesus is that they have begun to believe the lies of this world and they have forsaken the truth of the gospel. So he spends three chapters in the book of Ephesians explaining the truth of the gospel and then the last three chapters explaining how the truth bears out in their lives. Now we open it up in chapter one and verse one. You're gonna find it fascinating. Most Christians don't know who they truly are. So you might be saying to yourself, pastor, pastor, then who am I as a Christian? Say, who am I? Okay, here you are, number one. Who am I as a Christian? Number one, you are a saint, not a sinner. You are a saint, not a sinner. Say, I am a saint. Say it. Say, I'm a saint. Say it again. Some of you are very religious, so you're like, I'm not sure I can say it. I am a I know I'm a sinner. I know that part. I've been to church long enough to know I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Here's the problem. According to the scripture, the Bible tells you, you are theologically, spiritually, positionally, and in all ways a saint of Jesus Christ. Now, look what it says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. This is not my words. This is the word of God. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, you may not know this, but... In the olden days, they would not end their letter by signing their name. That's what we do. Dear so-and-so, 
and then we have everything, and then on the end, sincerely, Joshua Tice the Third Esquire, whatever, you know, you just put it all there. That's not how they started letters back then. Back then, they would start letters by beginning with who's writing the letter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one by Jesus himself, by the will of God. He says, I'm not doing this by my own free will. God sent me to do these things. God is the one who called me to be an apostle, an evangelist, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Now it tells us who the letter is to. It is the saints at Ephesus, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Pastor Josh, I know what a saint is, and the question is, do you really? See, there are modern definitions of the term saint. In our modern uh, vocabulary, we say things like, oh, my mother, my mother is a saint. My grandmother is a saint. And what you mean by, you say, what makes her a saint? Every time you go to her house, she makes chocolate chip cookies. And the scent of chocolate, by the way, doesn't that make somebody a saint? Yes or no? Yeah, a little bit, right? Chocolate chip cookies are flowing out the windows. You think, man, she's just a saint. She's always nice to children and she makes cookies. And so our modern definition or understanding of saint is somebody who does nice things for people. That's our modern understanding of the word saint. Then there's the Roman uh, Catholic Church's definition of the word saint, which is a little different. If you grew up Roman Catholic like many of us, maybe your mindset of a saint is, is a painting or a statue of somebody who never sinned, right? And there are official qualifications for the Roman Church. For example, to be a saint in the Roman Catholic tradition, you have to have been dead for five years. Um, how many of you are right now glad you're not a saint, right? I'm not, I'm not dead for five years. Not only that, you have to have proven heroic virtue. That, what does that mean, proven heroic virtue? You have to have done something so grand and so heroic that makes you a saint. And the other qualification is you have to have two verified proven historic miracles. Two. I only got one. I'm still working. I'm just kidding. I don't even have any. I don't have any. So there are different definitions of the word saint. The problem is the modern definition and the Roman Catholic definition are not found in the Bible at all. In fact, what the Bible actually says, um, by the way, if you're here today, and, and don't be offended whenever I, I um, some, some people come from a Baptist background like I do, a Catholic background, and uh, a Mormon background. Don't be offended whenever I talk about what religion teaches versus what the Bible teaches. The goal is to study what the Bible says. Religion sometimes is a mistake, right? So don't be too offended whenever I, I compare the two. Now, what does the scripture actually say about being a saint? A saint in the Bible is someone simply who believes in Jesus Christ, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Okay, how many here in this room, you're not perfect, but you do believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Anybody here like that? Are you like that? I'm not perfect, but I do believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, you are a saint. Say it, I am a saint. In fact, it says it right here, to the faithful who are in Ephesus uh, and faithful in Christ Jesus. That word and is a little deceptive. When the Apostle Paul is writing the saints at Ephesus, he is not saying there are two different categories of Christians. He's saying in this church that the saints are the ones who have put their full faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. You are a saint if you have put your full faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. It is your declared title. Understand, saint is not an earned title. It is a declared title. What does that mean? All right. Here's an illustration. I'll show you a photograph and I want you to shout out who it is, two people, who are these people whenever you see it. You ready? Let's show the photograph. Who are these people? Nobody knows, you know why? Because you're an American. <laughs> Does anybody know who these people are? Raise your hand, who is this? William and Kate. 
Yeah, all of you Americans are like, yeah, I remember, right? There's like this throne and we did this war and red coats, something. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is William and this is Kate. Now, I wrote this sermon in this illustration before William's grandfather passed away and, and God bless their family and, and all that they're grieving right now. But William and Kate, now William is, uh, has a title. Does anybody know his official title? What is it? Wrong. No, that's his classification. That's not his official title. He is, the, he is the prince, but it's not his official title. What is his official title? Anybody know? The, the Duke of, the, what did you say? The Duke of Wales? No, I think that was a song from the 60s. No, that's Duke of Earl, right? All right. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. One person's like, yeah, I remember that song. Yeah, that's a good song, yeah. Oh, my word, I'm showing my age. So what is it? Does anybody know? The answer is he's the Duke of Cambridge. Now, there are some people in this room who are like, I'm an American, I don't care. I agree, but let's get to the point. The point is this. How did William earn the title Duke of Cambridge? He was born. He didn't achieve the title. He received the title at birth. Now, some of you are thinking, man, I wish I received the title at birth. You have, you have. You see, you were born again into the family of God and you received the title, it's called saint. You are officially a saint by declaration. It's not something you earn, it's something you receive. Number one, I am a saint. Say it, I am a saint. Number two, number two, who are we, pastor? We are saints, not sinners. We are rich, not destitute. Rich, not destitute, rich. Uh, you're gonna like this one. Say, I am rich. I am rich, <laughs> I am rich. say it again. Now, now, not in one of these you know, motivational speaker ways, look in the mirror and be like, say it three times. <laughs> bloody Mary, bloody, no, don't do that, all right, remember that? Do you remember that as a kid? Ble say that? No, instead you say, uh, I am rich, you are rich, you are rich. No, no, like literally, not a mind trick, not a mind trick. You as a Christian need to understand the wealth you have in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to see it. You see, the problem with those who see themselves as sinners is they continue to act the way they see themselves. There are far too many Christians who are told on a continual basis, you're nothing but a sinner, you're nothing but a sinner. Now, I will tell you this, we are all sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. It's not inappropriate for a pastor or an evangelist or a Christian to say to a unbeliever, hey, we're all sinners and that we all have sinned against God. But theologically speaking and specifically speaking, we are not sinners, we are saints. And the, the longer you see yourself as nothing more than a wicked sinner is the more you're going to continue to live in sin. But the moment you see yourself as a saint, as a declared title of saint in the family of God, you begin to reject that which you are no longer. Not only are you a saint, not a sinner, number two, you are rich, not destitute. You need to see your wealth. Amen. Now, Look at what it says. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you ever wonder what God is thinking about you, if you're a Christian, if you're a saint, if you ever wonder what God is thinking about you, this is what he's thinking about you. Grace and peace. That's what he's thinking about you. Some of us were raised very religious and we think, okay, God, man, when I think about God, I know what he's thinking. God's gonna get me. 
God's angry with me, God's disappointed with me, God's displeased with me, God doesn't like me. What are you talking about God is displeased, doesn't like you? He thinks about you, he thinks this, grace toward that person, peace. Not because of who you are and what you've done, but because you are in Christ Jesus and because Christ has fulfilled all of the law, you are filled with grace and peace. This is your wealth in Christ and it goes on. He says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is blessed, bless him, why? Because of what he's given us. Who has given us, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. If you are in Christ, God has given you every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This means you are extremely wealthy. Now, now, let's look at what it does not say. It does not say who has blessed us with every physical blessing in earthly places. This is where a lot of Christians can get really confused because good meaning pastors will look at churches like this and they'll say things like, um, they'll say things like, they'll try to sell Jesus like he's, like he's a product behind the counter. You know what I mean? They'd be like, man, I'll just take Jesus, one dose of Jesus, and all of your wildest dreams will come true. <laughs> Everything will be okay. You'll never get sick, and you'll never. And, and if you ever believed in this stuff like I have in the past, you start following it. You're like, this is awesome, until you get sick, and you're like, I didn't believe enough. Oh, God wants you to be rich and wealthy, and you're going to have a boat. And what car do you want? What car do you want? What car do you want? Poof, God gave you the car. That's not how it works. God doesn't promise you, listen to me, I know this is a problem for some of us who have been very religious in other streams of uh, Christianity. God doesn't promise you all the earthly blessings in earthly places. God promises you every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Okay, well that's kind of, it's kind of a ripoff, you know what I mean? Like, I have to wait till I die and go to heaven before I'm like, I'm rich? The answer is you're still thinking, listen to me, listen, I love you, these are deep thoughts today, but pay attention. You're still thinking in terms of physical wealth, like gold-plated uh, gold uh, streets and, and mansions. I'm talking about spiritual wealth. Amen. The ability to make your relationships actually work. The ability to sleep at night without freaking yourself out. True love, true joy, true peace, true patience, true gentleness, true patience. All of these things are yours. They're your inheritance. You won them by the gift of God. They're all yours, free for the taking. And it's far better than some new boat, I'll tell you that right now. Spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You say, when do I have access to them? Right now. The reason you have access to them right now is because the Bible says you are already seated in heavenly places. We sing about that in Michael's second song. You are seated. You are already part of the family of God in heavenly places. It's, it's like this. It's like you have a giant bank account and you have access to all sorts of wealth. The problem is nobody ever gave you the PIN number. What Ephesians does is give you the PIN number. So you say, what is all this wealth? Well, the Apostle Paul takes a detour and tells us some other things, and then he comes back to it in verses seven and following. That's what next Sunday's sermon is all about. It's called, next Sunday sermon, you love this, next Sunday sermon is called cra uh, 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 Crazy Rich Christians. That's what it's called. <laughs> 
Next Sunday, Crazy Rich Christians. We're gonna talk about all the wealth you have in Jesus Christ, okay? So be here next week or you're gonna miss the best part of this entire series, all right? So where do we go from here? We first understand this truth. Number one, number one, you are a saint, not a sinner. Number two, you are, a, you are rich, not destitute. Say, I am a saint. I am a saint. Say, I am rich. I am rich. Number three, say, I am, I am chosen. You are chosen, not a mistake. Say, I am chosen. Say it one more time. I am chosen. This is beautiful because we live in a world that has tried to drill this into your head. You are nothing more than a cosmic accident. You're a mistake. Like, you're really lucky to be here, but you'll be gone very soon. So do whatever you can to make yourself feel good for these few years because the mistake is going to correct itself and you'll be gone. There's no divine plan, there's no divine. You have no purpose, not really. I mean, look at the stars. How could all of that exist and your minuscule little life mean anything? So you're a mistake. Some of us has not only been taught this academically, uh, and when I say academically, I roll my eyes, it really is just another religion and philosophy of this world. Some of you have been taught this in your family relationally, you're a mistake. We never wanted you in the first place. Some of you have heard some terrible, like God-awful things have been said to you by your own family. You gotta stop believing the lies. Here's the truth. You are not a mistake. You have been created and chosen by God himself. That's what the scripture says. Look, he goes on to explain just this in verse number four. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Chose you. That means you're the chosen, the chosen, the chosen. Have you seen that new television show, The Chosen? How many of you have seen this show? It's awesome. If you haven't, check it out. It's amazing. All you have to do is Google The Chosen TV, and it's amazing. It's a story about how Jesus uh, picks his disciples, and it's really, really cool. You can watch it. I, the whole last season, I watched last year, the first season, and the second season just came out. Really good show. The Chosen. Okay. By the way, one of our church members, uh, her name is Tracy. I don't know if you know Tracy. Tracy uh, loved the f- show so much, she applied to be an extra on the show. Here's a photograph of her uh, on the Sermon on the Mount scene. Uh, so in a couple of weeks, you're going to see that, and you're going to be like, where's Tracy? Where's Tracy? In fact, this is another photograph of the actual Sermon on the Mount scene that comes in a few weeks, which is cool. So she was actually on, in that scene as an extra. You say, man, that's so cool. I wish, I wish that could have been, been me. If you've ever seen the show like I have, the big thing that I think about as I watch this show, or it, you know, if you're a Christian who's read the Gospels, as you read the Gospels, you think to yourself, man, Jesus is picking Peter, picking John, picking Mary, Martha, Salome, Judas. And as he's picking all of these disciples, I don't know about you, but I, sometimes I sit there and I think, I wish I... I, I wish I could go back and, and I wish I could have been one, you know what I mean? Peter, James, Mary, Josh, Bartholomew, you know? <laughs> How cool would that be? To be able to follow Jesus from Capernaum over to, over to the city of Nain and up to Magdala. And, wouldn't that be amazing to be one of the original disciples, to be chosen? What the apostle is trying to tell you is that you are one of the chosen. You are. 
but he chose you so individually and so specifically, he did not want to choose you for Galilee during the first century. He wanted to choose you for Las Vegas in the 21st century. He chose you and he inspires you and he indwells you and he purposes you right now. You are chosen, you are not a mistake. He chose us in him. You say, when did he choose us? Great question, the verse tells us. He chose us, look at verse four on the screen. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When did he pick me, pastor? Did he pick me whenever I showed my greatest strength? Did he pick me the moment I was baptized? Did he pick me the moment I showed how wonderful and strong of a Christian I am? No, he picked you before you were even born. In fact, he picked you before your grandmother was born. He picked you before Moses was born. He picked you before the world ever had a foundation. See, that seems hard to believe. That's because the way you view time is different than the way God views time. See, you and I, because we're mortals and we live in time, we we view time as linear, past, present, and future. We're in the story. God created all things, including space, matter, and time. So God doesn't view time in a linear fashion. He views time above time, outside of time. He knows the beginning and he knows the end. And the only time he experiences time is when he inserts himself as a man into time like he did with Jesus Christ. And then he is now outside of time. Do you see? And so what this is saying is as God viewed all of time, he looked down in the story of time and he saw you. And he said, I want that person. See, the world you live in will tell you you are worthless and nothing and a piece of dust that will go back to dust. And Paul says, before there was time, he knew you and he picked you. Look, it goes on. What did he pick you for? He picked you to be holy. Say, okay, that's where I'm out, Pastor, because I I certainly am not holy. Uh, Do you agree with me that sometimes it's not so easy to be holy? But that's because we have an improper view of what holiness is. If if you grew up the way I did, I grew up in church, always surrounded by church things, and I, I thought the idea of holy was to put your hands together like this all the time and to speak in a way that made people very, very uncomfortable because I'm holy. And I look down my nose at those who are not holy. And I have a cold, apparently. (laughs) Okay. Holiness. The Bible says God picked you to be holy, Fota. You see? Holy. What does holy mean? All it means, it's very simple, all it means is different. God picked you to be set apart. God picked you to be different from the rest of the world. Here's what it practically means. It means at work, you're the Jesus guy. You're different than the others. That's all it means. You came from the same background. You used to think the same things. You used to do the same things. You used to go to the same places. You used to say the same things. But now he picked you. Once you realize he picked you, you're different than them. You're holy. You're without blame before him in love. That's who you are. You're the Jesus guy. You're the Jesus girl. There are other people who do what you do, other people who go the path that you go, other people who walk the same life you do. The difference between you and them is that you are the Jesus guy, you're the Jesus girl. 
you are holy without blame before him in love. You say, well, to be holy, I thought I had to be dead five years. No, you're still th thinking religious. I thought I had to make cookies for my grandchildren. If you do, make some for me too. That has nothing to do with holiness. Holiness is that you're the Jesus person wherever you go. And so what we see in the scripture is this. The apostle Paul is trying to tell these folks who they really are. You need to see yourself not as a sinner, but as a saint. You need to stop seeing yourself as destitute and see yourself as rich spiritually. You need to stop seeing yourself as a mistake and realize I am chosen by Jesus the same way he chose the ones and the disciples. And then, number four, I am adopted by the Father. I am not abandoned by God. Now, I want us to take a moment of meditation. Whew. Look at that. And let it sink in. There is a lie that the devil, the world, and your own flesh ties to tell you constantly, and that is this. Here's the lie. You have been abandoned by God. There is no God. One of the best ways to insult God is to tell him you don't believe in him, and I'm angry because God left me in my moment of sadness. God let my mother die. God let my father die. God let that man leave me. God let that person abuse me. I'm angry with God. So therefore, I don't believe in him. And so you've been told over and over by the enemy, you have been abandoned by God. Oh, my dear friend, hear me now. God never abandoned you. He adopted you. That's what it says. Look at what it says. He chose us, having predestined us unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Because of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross, he paid for your sin. That gave an allowance for God, the Father, to adopt you into his family. He picked you. Picked me for what? To be in his family. This is amazing to me. You know what God could have done? God could have created all of us and then picked which ones would be his robot slaves. He didn't. God created all of us and then he picked us to be in his family. My friend Rob is a pastor in Colorado. His wife Barbara and Heather and I were all, all four very dear friends, have been for years. Um, Rob and Barbara uh, didn't have any children for a while and they felt like God was leading them to adopt. This was 20 years ago now. Do you remember at the late 90s? In the late 90s, it was really in vogue to have international adoption, people flying all over the world, the Ukraine, Russia, Africa, adopting kids, right? And my, my friend did the same thing. They, they flew all the way to the Ukraine, and they went to an orphanage that had not a lot of resources, but plenty of children who had no parents. It was a beautiful moment, actually, but also really weird at times. He said he was sitting there, him and Barbara, uh, in a room where they went through the finalized paperwork, and he was sitting across from this, uh, this executive, this woman, and, and she's filling out stuff. Everything was done, and she looked up from the paperwork and said, okay, are you ready? He said, yeah, ready, what's next? Well, we're gonna go into the nursery. They stood up, they walked across the hall, they opened the doors, and there were cribs with babies lying there, and there were children, toddlers, running around playing with toys. And they all smiled and looked at each other, and then Rob looked at the woman and said, okay, now what? And she said, pick one. Uh, uh, what? P pick one, pick one, pick one. How do you, how do you, 
How do you do that? He said he was so overwhelmed by the moment, he didn't even know what to do. He, he walked out of the room and he put his hands in his head and he began to say, dear God, how to pick, pick one? How does somebody pick, pick one? Friend, what Paul is saying to you and me as Christians is that's exactly what God did. He saw the world and he picked you. And he said, you're in my family now. You say, but what did I do to earn this? What did I do to deserve it? Here's what you did. Jack squat. (laughs) You did diddly nothing. He picked you because he is good. And you're just a child having no clue what's going on. He adopted you. How many of you in this room can agree with me? God the Father is good. God is good. The scripture goes on. Having predestinated us according to the will, the uh, adoption of sons by the Father unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Again, some of us are really stubborn. We're like, but I want to know why. Why did he pick me? You specifically? Why did he pick you? Yes, why did he pick me? I don't know. Some of you I know, and I really have no idea why he would pick you. Like, what? I have no idea why. I I know me better than I know you. I don't know why he picked me. But here we get one small indication of why he picked you. He adopted us as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. You say, why did he do it? Here's the answer, because he wanted to. How many of you in this room believe that God can do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do? How many of you believe God? You're like, I don't know if I'm gonna, God, here's some rules for you. No, God can do whatever he wants because he wanted to. Man, wow, he picked you. Oh, what beauty is there in this passage? But it goes on. Look at what it says in verse six. To the praise and the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. We praise his glory and his grace. Why? Because he has made us, oh my word, he has made us accepted in him and accepted in the family of God. One of the biggest falsehoods of the Christian faith that has been taught for thousands of years is the only way to be accepted by God is by you doing good things. This tells us the exact opposite. Throughout Christian history, it's been taught the only way to be accepted by God's people, the church of God, is for you to do a list of good things and then you'll be accepted. This passage tells us the opposite. It's not what you do that makes you acceptable to God and his family. It's what God has done that has made you acceptable in the family. You say, well, what can I do to make myself more pleasing to God? You're already fully accepted, pal. See, this is how it works. I'm like the older brother that's in the home, of the foster home, with some really cool foster parents. And I've already been adopted. And you're new. And you've been through a lot of abuse and a lot of bad situations. And you're like, okay, I really like you here. What do I do not to screw this up? And I'm like, don't worry, guy. You're not going to screw it up. You say, but what if I mess up? Don't worry. They don't kick anybody out. But I really want them to like me. They already like you. They're very likable people. They like everybody. Well, I I don't want to screw this up. Do they really love me? Man, trust me. I know what you've been through, but they really love you. This is what I'm telling you as the older adopted kid. He's awesome, guys. 
He likes you and he loves you and the family likes you and everything's chill and for the first time in the world you're finally out of that mess and you're safe here. And you sure are lucky. And the Bible word is blessed. Blessed. So, what does this leave us? Well, two things. Number one, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're invited into the family too. All you have to do to get into the family is repent of your sin and ask Jesus Christ to save you and you'll be saved, you're in the family. It's very simple, I say the same thing every single week, maybe today's the day it slips through. Repent of your sin and receive Christ, you'll be born again. You'll be born into the family. What if I'm a Christian, what do I do? Well, there's not a lot of to-dos in this sermon, but what I would encourage you to do is continue reading the letter. Because the letter tells you all of the most amazing, cool things about what it's like to be who you are now. And that's what we're gonna lead into next week. Verse seven through 14, blow your mind. We call it crazy rich Christians. You're gonna love it, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance you've given us to study it today. Oh God, I pray for myself and my friends that we would not soon forget the beauty of these truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.